The kids of Elm Street don't know it yet, but something is coming to get them. From Wes Craven, director of The Hills Have Eyes, and Last House on the Left, a new masterpiece in fantasy terror, Nightmare on Elm Street. Whatever you do, on the balcony Did I say, this, say it again she stood she stood on the balcony inexplicably mimicking him hiccuping she stood on the balcony <laughs> can't even get the first part right yep she stood on the balcony I uh, got in my face um, she stood on the balcony she stood on the balcony and jumped off and killed herself let's get going his hiccuping okay she stood on the balcony inexplicably mimicking his hiccuping hello welcome to 100 lunatics <laughs> I'm your host, Daniel. With me is my cousin, Nathan. Nathan? A skunk sat on a stump and thunk the stump stunk, but the stump thunk the skunk stunk. They didn't like each other. I feel like you nailed it. (laughs) Good evening, everyone. Tonight, we are taking a look at 1984, Wes Craven's A Nightmare on Elm Street. Nathan, I am... Actually, really excited to talk about this movie. Let me say something real quick before you uh, inevitably barge in and take over the conversation. Um, In the back of my mind, I kind of had this worry that doing this podcast was going to make me come face to face with my nostalgia and watch it crumble away as I came to the realization that these are actually bad movies. But I've been watching a lot of these movies, kind of cheating a little bit and getting ahead of ourselves, and I'm finding myself liking them much more than when I was young. So that's what you've been doing? You've been you've been jumping ahead? Uh, no. Watching other movies? Just a, that's you've been just spending a franchises your time? that we haven't, uh, we won't get to for a while. Hell, so basically actually, what no, you no, just actually, said to me, and, no, 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 what you just said to me was that you said different franchises, which means no relevance to what we're talking about today. So let's not bore the audience with things that don't matter and talk about something that does matter. Like the Nightmare on Elm Street movie made in 1984 by Wes Craven. I was making the point that I thought as a horror fan I was going to be a little bit disappointed. But it's turning out that I'm liking these a lot better than when I was younger. I have a better appreciation for them is what I'm saying, Nathan. Okay, you're trying to tell me that you think they're better than what you thought they were going to be. Yeah. Or or what you remembered them to be. Right. I, I'm listening to you. I hear you. I want you to know that I'm listening. But I also want you to know that I've never seen these movies before. So I simply just cannot relate to you. This was my first viewing of A Nightmare on Elm Street. Mm. I have nothing to relate to it with. 
Well, that's uh, even I'm glad, more. Exciting. I'm glad that you. I'm glad that you've decided to appreciate it. You know, in depth when you thought it was going to be. You know, secretly, because let's be honest, before this, you were boasting about your love for horror, and you made no indication that you felt this way at all. But now, here, at the very beginning of this podcast, you have exposed the fact that you had hesitation. You thought they were going to suck. And you're happily surprised that you don't think that they suck. So I'm glad that you feel better about the whole thing. But personally, mine is a fresh opinion. Being a first, uh, a first viewing, a first, mm-hmm. and first how much viewing. more exciting your first time watching a Nightmare <laughs> on Elm Street? That's amazing. Um, yeah, I guess I guess you could you could look at it that way. You could say, "Oh, wow, I wish it was my first time." You know, that's exactly what I'm thinking. But it had been long enough to where I did kind of feel like I was watching it over again. But for you in particular, you never caught it on TV or a snippet here and a snippet there or. Just no, just zero exposure. I can honestly say that I have never seen any of this movie ever before, ever in my entire life. Let's be very clear about something. I don't, I don't really care about horror movies. I'm very indifferent towards the genre itself. That's why I hate horror. That's why I'm here to debate you, someone who loves them. Right. Wes Craven himself, I can respect the fact that he's a, you know, a director and a writer that's had a great career and made an impact on the cinema industry and all of that. I have nothing against Wes Craven. I have nothing against him at all. I don't necessarily celebrate him because I don't think that it's, he's amazing. I think there's a lot of shit that has been created by him and Oh, absolutely. Yeah, we'll not discuss my soul to take. <laughs> I would say that this movie, there are a few moments in it where I was actually, based on the trailer, surprised that it came across as well as it did in the actual filming of the movie. The trailer did not do this movie justice at all. Yeah, I agree, I agree with that. Yes, you're right. I will make that statement and be honest because that's what I am. I'm an honest person. Hey. I, I bring I bring truth to the moment. But this movie did not frighten me. Not even a not even a bit. No. When I was when I was younger, maybe it would have. But now, just not even not even a tiny amount. Yeah, me me neither. And honestly, when I was young, this was not one of the ones that scared me either. Jason never really scared me that much, but he scared me more than Freddy. Uh, especially once we get into the sequels, you'll see that Freddy takes on his uh, satirical side much more. Well, it's because he's supernatural, man. He's a, he's he's beyond the realm of reality. I thought that when we first, you know, did episode zero, that this is a more scary concept because you can't escape him because he's in your dreams. But really, after watching it, I gotta say that a random act of violence like like Jason is much more capable of happening to you. Yeah. Hence, hence you would relate to the possibility of it occurring more. Yeah, Freddy is like vaudeville, and Jason is like a great white shark. That's how I've seen them described online, which is very accurate, you know. But um, what do you mean by great white shark? He just is a big beast that just never stops coming. You know, oh, okay. built built to kill, doesn't talk. But um, I can say about a, a a New Line Cinema, 
when they decided to produce this movie, they got a place called Smart Egg Pictures to come on board with $2 million. And they got everything set up. They started filming. They started buying props and making props and putting special effects together. And then, boom, Smart Egg pulled out at the last minute. Cast and crew went unpaid for weeks. Robert and Wes uh, scrambled to find funding from anywhere that they could, putting up their own money when they had to. And then finally they found this place called Media Home Entertainment to put up a whole bunch of money to kind of stabilize everything. And even though that was solved then, they kept getting little hiccups along the way where they'd run out of money and the overlap wasn't there. And so they'd have like Charles Bernstein who made the score for the film. He like finished the score and then held it hostage until he got paid. And then when they sent the 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 film, the actual negative off to be uh, assembled and everything, when they got the final print done, that company held on to it until they got paid. So this entire movie, uh, they're desperate all the time with all of their different pieces and different directions being held hostage. And they're just scr- pulling their hair out, trying to pull some money together. Their entire Makeup effects budget was $20,000. It shows. <laughs> yeah, it, do, it does. But $20,000, I'm sure that's like one makeup sitting. I don't know, man. It feels like you want me to buy into the plight of movies that like fight against the odds to get made. That shit happens all the time. Yeah, it does. It's not a It's, it's, not a, a, it's a story behind occurrence. many films, and this is the story behind this one. Okay, I mean, I get it. I get that, you know, this, if the if the situation didn't happen the way that it happened, and if these pieces didn't fall into place the way that they fell, that Nightmare on Elm Street would never be. And if Nightmare on Elm Street never was, then, you know, Nightmare on Elm Street 2 and 3 and 4 and 5 and Freddy and Jason would have never happened. And oh, how the world would have, you know... Suffered. <laughs> That's really hard for you to say that. I don't. I could feel, like, I could there feel are some movies out there. Out over your tongue. There are some movies out there that's that had a struggle to get made. Like, you know, and if they didn't get made, it would have been a travesty because of the comment it made on life or the message that it gave to the world. Yes, but I agree. It movie, would have been a travesty if had this not it, been made. I absolutely I'm agree. sorry, but if, if Nightmare on Elm Street didn't get made... Travesty. You know, it uh, it really wouldn't have affected me personally in my life, other than this moment. This moment right here would be the most affected moment by this movie not existing, because I am involved in this podcast. All right, let's, let's take a look at the uh, cast here. We have Heather Langenkamp as Nancy Thompson, Robert England as Frederick Charles Kruger, uh, Nick Corey, now known as Isu Garcia, as Rod Lane. Amanda Weiss as Tina Gray. Johnny Depp making his debut uh, as Glenn Lance, Nathan's favorite character. Long live Glenn. John Saxon as Lieutenant Donald Thompson and Ronnie Blakely, star of 1970s Nashville, as Marge Thompson, Nancy's mother. That's our cast. Anyone in particular speak out to you? Any performances you liked? I mean, obviously you're a big Depp fan in this movie, um, just because of how blasé <laughs> and cool he is, and his really thin hips. And... Long live Lance. <laughs> yes. um, um, anybody you know else? What? I would have to say that uh, Tina actually 
you know, in terms of the horror movie Scream Queen yes. persona, Tina is much more appealing than Nancy is. And had they reversed roles, it might have been even more engaging. Ooh, yeah. I got to wildly disagree about that. I will agree with the first part of your statement, though. I do think Tina's performance, or not Tina, I want to call her. I will call it Tina. Uh, when she's getting chopped up around the ceiling and screaming and all that was really good. So in terms of being a better scream queen, yes, I totally agree. She's the better scream queen. But I love Heather Langenkamp's performance in this movie. It's great. She's super mm. innocent, but she's also like a badass. She doesn't put up with her parents' bullshit. She doesn't have time to explain things. She just makes plans and hopes that people will follow along. Uh... Uh, she was in a cutscene from The Outsiders. Uh, she was in a couple of episodes of Just the Ten of Us. Uh, the uh, you know, there's a couple of uh, Nightmare on Elm Street sequels we'll get to along the way that she came back for. But really, she dropped out of the acting business entirely. She runs in a, an FX studio with her husband and does uh, movie makeup. Does anyone really want to hear about Heather Langenkamp and where she is now doing special effects and jerking off in whatever fucking small county in the middle, middle of fucking America? Who gives a fuck? Here. You know what? Let's change the format up. At the end of the podcast, you can have a little Daniel's Corner where you can talk about all this useless bullshit that people want to hear about. Uh, she also these- um, started a, a company that failed eventually. Uh, that sold trading cards of surfers that contained gum. <laughs> Great idea. That that wow. went on. Surprised it didn't take off. That went under. And uh, she once played Nancy Kerrigan in a made-for-TV movie. You could totally see that. And um, and finally, yeah, she had an unrecognizable uh, cameo in Star Trek Into Darkness. Star Trek Into Darkness. Seriously? Mm-hmm. She plays one of the like. Aliens. She's in full costume getup that I'm sure her company had some part in making. You want to know who Fred Krueger was? He was a filthy child murderer who killed at least 20 kids in the neighborhood. Kids we all knew. Oh, Mom. It drove us crazy when we didn't know who it was. But it was even worse after they caught him. They put him away. All the lawyers got fat and the judge got famous, but somebody forgot to sign the search warrant in the right place and Kruger was free just like that. What did you do, Mother? A bunch of us parents tracked him down after they let him out. We found him in an old abandoned boiler room where he used to take his kids. Go on. Took gasoline. Put it all around the place and made a trail of it out the door. Then lit the whole thing up and watched it burn. Let's go to the walkthrough. Boom. We open up. What's the first scene that we open up on to, Nathan? I think the first scene we open up on is Tina dreaming. Close. It's actually the assembly of the glove. Oh, right. Yeah, no, no, that's not the scene we open up on. That's the credits. Oh, okay. Fair, fair enough, yeah, because it is in a smaller window. Yeah, the glove assembly, which is not Robert England. That's the actual special effects guy putting that together. And then, that's right, boom, straight into Tina dreaming. And he... uh, I think she starts out in some sort of 
hallway. She's running through a hallway and she stops and she looks around, you know, doesn't know where she is. And I'm, I'm, I'm kind of pissed off because I get the feeling like you're going to pull out the whole, you know, she's dreaming. Do you norm, do you act normally in a dream state? You know, <laughs> like you're going to do that a lot. <laughs> and because one of my biggest gripes about this movie is that, you know, she's, that there's overacting going on in a lot of the dream state situations. Yeah. Where they stop and they look around, where am I? And you're like, hey, Tina, nothing's changed. You're still in a fucking hallway. That's right. You know, I, I get it. No, there's... Oh, wait, something did change. There's a fucking goat, which has nothing to do with anything. The only thing the goat, the only purpose the goat serves and if you bring up some sort of fucking religious nonsense reference, I'm going to get really angry. But <laughs> it's it's basically to serve like, what the fuck is a goat doing in this hallway? Oh, she's dreaming. It's to give you the indication that she's dreaming, potentially, <laughs> is my thought. But if there's some sort of like biblical passage or something about goats in hallways, I'm going to puke. No, no, um, there's there's no direct biblical uh, pretentiousness or anything. There's a... A handful of odd things in this movie or things that might seem odd if you point them out like you just did with the sheep or the lamb. But uh, mm. those are like nods from Wes Craven to directors that he loves or other directors that are currently directing. Okay. Well, she leaves the hallway and then, yeah, she goes into like the boiler room area and that's where she... She does that stupid fake run. Uh, yeah, she does a stupid every, fake I see run. it every time, and I'm just like... Ugh. And I don't remember where you see Freddy. You might... There might be, like, a, a glimpse of, like... Yeah, he, he pops up behind her, and he, he tears her, her nighty. Yeah, but she, like, goes into that hole and then turns around and like, Oh, I have nowhere to go, and I'm helpless, and I'm going to bounce around in this nighty, and I've got these perfect perky little breasts that are poking through this nighty. You know what? The <laughs> sexuality in older movies was done more effectively. It was. It was done so much more effectively. Now they just show you everything, and you're like, oh, sweet, boobs. But back in the day, they like bar- you like barely miss it, you know? Like when she gets out of the bed to look out the window later, you know, when she's you know screwing that guy, Rod. Yeah, and she has to put her and she, robe like, on. She puts on the, on the shirt, right? She puts on the shirt, and they just catch it, like, just, just barely, just barely just like whisping past the nipple and you don't see it nope. but you barely don't see it you like know a, like a blurry peripheral of under boob maybe and and her boob becomes like the most majestic thing in the world because you can't because you missed it that's right because you're so you're so used to this day and age is you know display of breasts all the time that you just you know it's refreshing to see them you know tease you with it it's great yeah i, I think a swing back towards subtlety is coming our way Hmm. I hope so, but it's so hard in a world where censorship has gone, you know, completely transparent. The internet has destroyed it. All right, so Tina's being chased around in the boiler room. Oh, right at the fucking beginning. Right at the very beginning. (laughs) The very fucking beginning. Um, Freddy jumps up behind her, scratches her nightie in the front. She wakes up terrified in the real world. Her mom bursts into the room. <laughs> we get cut a, your nails, honey. <laughs> <laughs> we get we get a glimpse of Tina's dad. Doesn't give a shit about her. Just wants to keep on having sex with his wife. Mm-hmm. And that's when Tina looks down and notices that her nightie is also torn in the real world, where we as the viewer get our first glimpse or understanding that uh, there's carryover. 
Oh, sorry. Dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> Things that affect you in the nightmare can affect you in real life. Oh, my God. That's crazy. Boom. And then, dun, dun, dun. And then I think we jump straight to Depp taking the girls to school in, like, a badass, like, 50s car. Yeah, it's like a red convertible. It's yeah, old it's school. Like, yeah, it's like a like comet. A, yeah, he's got, like, an old 50s or 60s convertible roadster. He's driving yeah. Nancy and Tina to school. He's so charming. He's so clever. He's, he's so young there. <sighs> he's, he's he's older than them, though. He's like oh. 21, 22, I think, there. And the wow. rest of them are 18. Wow, so mature, Glenn. He is. You can tell how mature he is once we get to the scene where Depp is hanging out, or Glenn, excuse me. Glenn is hanging out with Nancy and Tina at Tina's house because Tina's parents are gone, and she's a little bit afraid. She wants some company. He comes over and he pulls that hilarious, timeless stereo joke as he's talking to his mom on the phone. Did that come mm-hmm. off as a joke to you? I found that scene very awkward. Um, no, no, he seemed charming and clever, like he was trying to impress the girls a little with his pizzazz. Yeah, I got that, but that there was a joke being played on his mom with sound effects—that all seemed really weird. No, I don't think it was. I didn't come across, come across weird to me. It seemed dated first of all with the giant boom box and the cassette tapes well yeah yeah which to be honest with you to me and you that's like oh cassette tapes Cute. oh boom boxes but to those. some to some younger kid who's appreciating older stuff would be like oh shit what the fuck is that like the ew, gross. You and, <laughs> yeah the way you and me look at eight tracks that's what they see ew gross i don't say ew gross when i see eight tracks i go whoa Eight tracks. Whoa, that's, that's old, right? That's a good, but they that's a good look way at, of approaching the situation. They look at cassettes and they're like, "Oh, cassettes! Holy shit, that's old!" You know. Mm-hmm. And if they ever saw an eight track, they'd be like, "What the fuck is that?" Exactly. Anyway, so I think there's an element of disrespect towards the mother here as well. You know, like he doesn't have a he has he seems to have a very lack of respect for anyone. He seems very nonchalant. Oh yeah, he he doesn't like authority. He doesn't like being this told is, what to this do. This is what this he doesn't is, like following instructions. But it's that attitude, is that badass attitude that probably created the star. You know, that's true. The girls found it very appealing that he was very indifferent. Oh, very much so. They all mm-hmm. liked him. Wes Craven's daughters liked him. Heather had a little bit of a crush on him, so much so that they had an awkward kissing scene, which had to be cut out. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, no, Johnny is definitely, I mean, I guess we're we're manipulated and polluted by the fact that he's a big deal now. Right. And then they hear a noise outside. They go out to investigate, and Johnny Depp says, chow, chow, chow? What is that? Yeah, I saw that in your live tweets. I don't, uh, I don't, I don't recall that happening. He goes out and he goes, here, kitty, kitty, and he goes, chow, chow, chow. <laughs> what the fuck does mm. that mean? And that's when Rod jumps oh, you out mean of the bushes. When, yeah, when, when Rod jumps out of the bushes. No, I wasn't paying much attention to what he was saying. Yeah, I have no idea what that Maybe he had a chow as a dog? But even then, you don't call your dog by its breed. So, so that I didn't get. But we get our first introduction know. to Rod, who aggressively you could, you could say that when you, when you call to a dog to eat food, that you're saying... You know, chow 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 it's time for some it's time for some chow chow come on buddy chow chow and he was just adding the third chow on because he's you know 
so nonchalant and and yeah, so Louis, Johnny. Lure yeah. the stray he's so, dog he's out so of the bushes Glenn, so I can feed so it. So Glenn Lance. What a fucked up name. Glenn Lance. That's his Glenn name. Lance. Glenn. With a Z. His name's Glenn? Glenn. Glenn. Okay. Hey, my dad Lowell was once a child. Stop it. Yeah. Just stop it. Glenn? Fuck off. Glenn. Glenn Lance. Glenn Lance. Look at, look at the rest of the names. All right. Nancy. Tina. Rod. Glenn? Rod. Rod Lane. Yeah, Rod's totally dated. <laughs> Rod. Yeah, no one's called. No, you don't hear Rod very much anymore. Hey, okay. But I don't think I've ever heard of Glenn, though. You're right about that. Glenn's an odd name. It's an odd choice. No, I'm not going to. Yeah, no, you're right. I'm not going to argue with that. Okay. Well, then don't argue. Continue. I'm, I'm, I'm Rod continue. comes out of the bushes. Rod's out of the bushes. Oh, it's so scary. Nice. It's typical, typical trope. Typical jump scare. That is right. We're gonna we're gonna bring up the trope here because it's an obvious trope point. Yep, there's probably just a- as an actor reading scripts and saying, "Oh, new beat." We as podcast reviewers are going to say, "Oh, trope." Oh, trope. That's right. There's actually a long line of them here. Actually, there's the teenagers hanging out without their parents, home alone. There's hearing a mysterious noise outside and going to investigate it. And then the jump scare out of the bushes. Oh, it's not something scary. It's actually just another one of the main characters. Then they all go inside. Tina is obviously the sluttier one because her and Rod go straight to banging. But Nancy is kind of a prude. Would you like to know what I thought during that scene? She she makes Jeps uh Jep. She makes uh, Johnny Depp sleep on the couch. What did you think about that scene? I thought he was listening to a recording of him and Nancy having sex. What? On the on the cassette tape in the in the boombox. Well, if I can't get it, I can at least remember about getting it. <laughs> no, <laughs> He's my, just my initial reaction off to recordings of him and Nancy. Yeah, sex. my initial reaction was like, "Oh, that's creepy." <laughs> <laughs> and, then, and then it was like, "Oh shit." Rod's getting some. I didn't think he was in there, you know, like because their initial walk down the sidewalk didn't indicate to me that Tina was opening her legs anytime soon. Right. I think that's that's why it didn't make sense to me. And then, oh, okay, Rod did get in there. You know, Tina did like him that much. That wasn't really conveyed that well. Oh, he got right in there. You can say that Rod condemned her because in classic horror trope fashion, the sluts are the first to go. Hmm. <laughs> And there was just simply no black people in this movie. None. <laughs> None. So, not a single next, one, I don't think, actually. Next up, on deck, sluts. <clears throat> so that's right. Sluts go next. Blondes have all the fun. Blondes die first. And that's where we get our first death of the film. Freddy's first initial kill. Tina Gray. <laughs> dragged all around the room. Poor bitch. Mm. See, the actual death scene is not, I mean. Right. How does it look Cause, now? Cause, Cause, cause we because we have to go you, back and look at you've this already made the comment. Eyes. You've already made the comment during this podcast that you liked this scene. And I did not <laughs> like this scene that much at all. Right. And I can, I can get that. This is why we have to go back and look at this through 1980s special effects eyes. And think about what's been done before mm. and what hasn't been done before. Not mm. what looks good now. Because now, yeah, it's a little cheesy. 
But at the time, they made an entire bedroom and painstakingly went through and tied everything down that could show signs that the room was being turned around completely on its axis. And that's what they did. They flipped that entire room around and had her just crawl along the floor as it changed from wall to ceiling. And she acted that entire thing out by herself. Wow, what a great job. That's right. All she had to do was just follow the rotating room. And that was a big deal back then. Now I get it. It doesn't look so you know extravagant. On that budget, okay, maybe. Yeah, maybe a, a rotating of, room. Yeah. Maybe I could give it a little bit of credit on that budget. But in, in that, you take into account the time frame and the budget, you could give it a little bit of credit. But no, I'm sorry. It wasn't... Uh, that scene is not going to go down in horror movie lore as some sort of epic achievement. All right. Well, so we were talking about censors earlier. Because I'll tell you why. Okay. I'll give you my reasons. Um, 11 years before that, The Exorcist accomplished much more. In 1973, The Exorcist did more with that kind of scene than, than you know, it's just, it's like... It, it comes across as tryhard. When there's another movie that's established precedence before that, it's not. It's nothing. It's right. Pointless. There's no rotating, uh, completely rotating sets on The Exorcist or anything. But yeah, no, but I'm talking about. I'm talking about. The, the Exorcist about, like, is a more effective horror movie. I'm talking about. Yeah. Okay. The Exorcist is is possession based, and it's it doesn't necessarily do the same things. But it achieves its goal more effectively in making you believe that there's something actually going on. Whereas this is just like what? No, why was she? Why was she on the ceiling? Why was she on the ceiling? Because she was wrestling in the dream world. The point is no, no. The point is to shock the audience with some sort of massive special effect. That's right. There's no point for him to stick his blade inside of her and and hold her up on the ceiling there's no point to it there's no purpose see right. everything in the exorcist is driven by purpose by possession by the point of what's happening to her whereas this is like everything else in the movie that freddy does there's no the he doesn't he doesn't you know stick his blade inside people and you know push them up against ceilings that's not his that's not his bag he doesn't do that well, that aside, we don't know what's happening in Tina's dream. As she's engaging with Freddy and wrestling with him and getting shredded to bits, I'm sure she's losing uh, conscious control over her dreamscape. So she's probably just tumbling through the ether on the other side, and God knows what's up or down, left or right. You know, it makes sense that she'd be dragged all around the perimeters of her bedroom, possibly, and if it was outside, she might have been taken up into the sky. We will never know. But she gets thrown around the room. She gets shredded up. She headbutts Rod, who falls down, breaks the lamp. Uh, Let the record show that he has pulled the dream card on me. What? Don't. What? Don't make disclaimers that. that no, you're discrediting my saying. point. You're discrediting my point by saying that. Um, you know, who knows what's going on in the dream world? That's right. Because she could be tumbling down the rabbit hole towards Wonderland. We have no idea, and that's why she's crawling across the ceiling and falling down onto the bed and acting <laughs> that's, ridiculous. That's right. It's because you, you got to come at me at the right way. 
you gotta be if if you say uh, could it be done better? Yeah, that scene could probably be done better. But is there no logical foundation for that scene? Of course there is. Not in the rest of the movie. There isn't. That's the only scene that he attacks someone in that way, and it's because they're trying to shock you because it's the first death. That's it's right. a shock based decision. They're trying to go big on the first death to get you. It's a production value decision. It's not a script and story-based decision, which is what I'm trying to communicate. That's right. But I I end up in this epic conversation about dreams and wonderland. That's right. And there is... there is ether. What the fuck does ether have to do with anything? She's tumbling through the ether. She can't make up from down. Before, she was in some weird boiler room place. Now that she's panicked, she's just tumbling through the sky. But that said, you're right. The point that you're making is right. Thank you. Thank you for relenting. No, there's no it's, relenting. It's good to see that there is there is a no, no, give see, and take. You see, you always like you manage to do this. Like when I, <laughs> I, I give I give you a. It's foot good to you, see that there's a give I and give take. Give you a foot and you step on my toes. That's okay, like your, that's like your thing. I take back the fact that I said relenting because that made you feel like you were losing. I get it. I'm not saying that you lost this argument. I'm saying that it's nice to see that there's a give and take. That it's a revolving door. Okay, that there's balance. Are we are we okay now? Are we fine now? Are you done fucking belly aching like a child? Let's by, move on to the next. By scene. 2013 standards, does it look hackneyed and sensational? Of course. At the time, though, when you're making hackney and sensational, before it becomes that derivative term, you know, it's a big thing. But I get it now. Not such a big thing. They dragged her across the ceiling. Whoopty fucking do. They chose to go big. They should have gone small. She should have died underneath the blanket. Rod should have stepped up, looked underneath the blanket, saw that she was in a mangled, bloody mess. Would have been more effective. Mm -hmm. Instead of of decorating the whole room in blood and landing her like a piece of, you know, slaughtered cow meat on the side of the bed. (laughs) Yeah. It's ridiculous. I was I'm ridiculous. Gla- I'm, I'm glad that imagine, you said that. Imagine the blood like showing through the blanket. You know, if, if everything happened underneath the blanket and the blood, you know, spattered on the blanket and, and you know, it's just his panic showed on his face. You got more out of his reaction. Why couldn't they take their example with the sexuality? You know, how they barely miss the nipple. You know, they get away with as much as they could. But they still give you a hard on. Right, you gratuitous know, violence with no gratuitous nudity, is that what you mean? Dial it back the same way with the rest of the effects, you know? Right. His reaction to the blanket starting to show blood is more effective than decorating the whole room with nonsense. That's true. That's true. Would a subtler method have been more scary? Yes, I agree. Yes. Thank you. Is, I'm right, you're wrong. So I'm right, you're wrong. Is the scene Never mind. Swinging, so revolving door. Revolving Absolutely door. Balance. Not. Balance. The scene is great as is. It stands. No, scene is I not great people as is. I remember it. This is one of let people's the, favorite Let the record the show that Daniel says scene is great as is. Let the record show that Nathan says scene is not great as is. Could have been better if done simpler. And that's the stance. So don't try to summarize this by saying that it's a good scene and moving. Let's let's move on. I'm saying that stance is ridiculous because then you'd have to change the entire tone of the movie, which is not going to happen. Well, we're going to end up in a lot of conversations about the tone of this movie and where it should go in several different scenes. This is the first kill scene. 
And it's I've already first. chewed it up. I've already chewed it up and made you agree with me about where what would have made it better. Do you think that the rest of this movie isn't going to have more additions, more adjustments, more corrections coming? Please. Oh, no, of course there are. Continue. And of course, there's an element of me that agrees with a lot of the things that you point out in these films. We just don't need two of us pointing them out. You know, you point them out, I'll point out the opposite. A lot of times, though, I, there is merit to what you're saying. I am a very strict judge of horror. And even though this, I give this a lot of leniency because it's old and it's obviously camp, the points you make are true. Is Subtler better? Always. Is it better to not see the villain as opposed to seeing him in your face crinkling his claws at you and making puns? Of course. Uh, is it better to hide the fact that your makeup budget is so small? Yes. <laughs> yes. All those points are relevant. But there is still a... joy to be had in the over-sensationalized element of this film. What happens after that? What happens after the death? They after call the, the death, cops, don't they? Nope. Rod jumps out the window. Um, Nancy and Glenn run upstairs in a panic. They stumble in. They see the blood everywhere. And everyone mm-hmm. immediately assumes that what? That Rod well, has killed Tina. It's obvious. If you put yourself in their shoes, it's obvious. Yeah, who else? Two people it? in one room. She's dead. Blood all over the place. Rod's a psycho. Done right. deal. Lock Glenn that is, bastard up. Glenn's sitting there thinking, like, "Oh God, I was jerking off to them having sex, but was he murder raping her?" Yeah. What did he say downstairs? You know, screw morality. Ugh. Yeah. Fucking morality. I'm so tired of being the nice guy. I want to get my so I wanna, guilty I wanna, I wanna now. Dip. I want to dip my stick. He's like, come on, in, Nancy, just have a drink. <laughs> I want to I want to dip my stick in Heather's Lang and Camp. That was great. Um they go to, they end up going to school the next day, regardless of the situation. On the walk home from school, Nancy gets pulled into the bushes by a still bloodied and I guess been hiding all night, Rod. <laughs> Right? I guess he's just been hiding out there in the woods. He pulls her in, right? He's terrified that she might think that he's a fruitcake or something. Terrible decision-making, Rod. But what's great in that scene is that John Saxon pops in out of nowhere, obviously been following his daughter all day. And he ends up (laughs) pointing a gun directly at his own daughter's chest when she jumps in the way to protect Rod from getting shot. And then uh, John Saxon has a great line... Where when his daughter starts freaking out at him about what's going on, he's like, what the fuck are you doing going to school when your friend just died? <laughs> yeah, the dad shows up. They have an altercation. They throw Rod in jail. Like, that's the outcome. Right? Yeah, they, they chase him down like, the street. They throw him in jail. Rod's in jail. Rod Basically, the writers are like, well, we need a way to get Rod in jail. So here's this scene where he comes out of the bushes and... Gets arrested. Yeah. Like, I, I often question a movie's process in certain situations. Like, he he freaks out and jumps out the window. Like, if you were truly just affected by that moment, wouldn't you stand pat and be like, what the fuck just happened? Instead of, like, immediately jumping to the fact that they're going to blame you? Right. Yeah, that's, that's the debate. Is it, do I proclaim my innocence and make myself look more innocent by staying around? Or do I immediately yeah. assume that the situation is too bad and that I can't? defend myself and I have to right. just go. So, so Rod's character chose to leave. So they had to come up with a hokey scene for him to get caught. That's right. And it would have been, it would have played better if he just stand pat, stood pat, but whatever. It would have. At least this way we get to know that he has some sort of remorse and 
he's desperate for Nancy to know that he didn't do it and that he's not a fruitcake. That's the important part. That's the most important part. Most important part is that he's not a fruitcake. Mm-hmm. So he gets so, put in jail. So he's in prison. Lieutenant Don, no, Lieutenant Donald Thompson, you know, he's in serious business mode. Although I want to point out that I I don't see, like, are they together? Are, no, are Don and Marge together? No, they're not. I was just going to bring this up. No, yeah. they're not. They're divorced. But that's never mentioned. You are only allowed to assume that they're divorced because they're never in the same house together. Yeah, he's never in that house. Yeah, yeah. which is which is really interesting because in 1984, divorce was not super taboo, but it was still looked down upon. Well, definitely wasn't at 50%. <laughs> right, exactly. And and that's and when I, when I remember noticing that, because it was actually Jasmine, I was watching it with Jasmine, and she's the one that brought up that they were divorced. And that made me think, I wonder if this is why I identify with this film so strongly over other horror films when I think nostalgically back to my youth. I wonder if I recognize that as well. And I, I watched these movies to kind of cope with my parents' divorce, and I wonder if I attached myself so strongly to this one because Nancy's parents were divorced. But I don't think I was that smart back then. Well, but maybe it was. Maybe it subconsciously affected you. Maybe I don't know. You know, maybe maybe it's time for therapy session with Daniel and. Nathan. I already had it. I cried during the commentary. No, I'm just joking. I've <laughs> <That> been great. <laughs> <laughs> I'm I'm bringing up the fact. I'm bringing up the fact that you know, let's not walk down that road because that's ridiculous. <laughs> right. Um. Interesting okay. observation. It is an interesting observation. Possibly movies about divorce do impact other people with divorce. Does it have to be a cheesy, hokey horror movie from 1984? No. It could have been any movie about any divorce. Any cheesy, hokey movie. Yeah. Any movie about divorce or with divorce in it at any point in your life could affect you subconsciously about your experiences with your broken family. However, Correct. this is a hokey 1984 horror movie about a f- psychopath child molesting murderer that lives in your dreams that likes to kill people with a hand with blades on the end of it that he created in some sort of strange boiler room he has burn marks because they burned him alive although they don't really you know give you any visuals on that they just, no there's no visuals you just get a, a kind of a drunken confession from ronnie blakely yeah. i'm just i'm just saying this would be an odd movie to connect with in that way okay there's That's better right. movies out there about divorce that you could connect with there but probably is. your demented little self walked into a horror into a video store and said that fucked up one please i'll take that one i was like freddie help me get through this yeah whatever it's because when you were small, you were under the impression that you had to push, you know, the threshold and, and walk down the road less traveled. Yeah, and I desperately wanted to murder people that I loved in their dreams. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I really connected with Freddy, you know, on a personal level. <laughs> mm-hmm. I, there was a part of me that watched these films and thought, I could be more creative than that. All right, boom, he's in jail. Next day, everything is relatively back to normal. I think uh, Nancy and Glenn are uh, hanging out with each other. Is this when... When does Nancy recognize that falling asleep is terrible? She has her own bad dreams, right? Um, She dreams that Freddy is kind of like coming out through the spandex wall behind her and knocks the cross off the she wall. She doesn't see... No, she doesn't see him. 
That's right, but she recognizes that. But I will say, I will say that that is one of the moments in this movie that I felt like the trailer didn't do justice to. When I saw that scenes, like that cut scene from the trailer from that part, I was like, oh god, the special effects in this movie are terrible. Right. But when you actually watch the real movie, the lighting and everything that they used in the scene actually makes it a lot more effective than I thought it would be. And it uh, it looks good. Right. They do as much as they for, can to hide for, the rough for edges. 80, for 84, it looks good. And she doesn't notice. The, the crucifix falls off the wall. She notices that. But she doesn't notice what has gone on above her head. Right. So... You know, she she looks up, but she doesn't see anything. Like she knows, so, like she felt like something happened above her, but she doesn't know what. Right. I just can't remember where it is that she recognizes that falling asleep is a bad, bad idea. I think it's the death of Tina that really triggers everything because Tina is talking to her about, you know. Oh, that's seeing in her dreams. There you go. That's right. You know, it it connects with Nancy that she's possibly seeing something similar to what she's seeing. And then Tina dies. And I think she even goes out of her way to comment that I have seen the same person. Yeah. Yeah. I was having a similar dream as Tina and now she's dead. So what does that mean for me? And that's why she's afraid to go to sleep. And that's why she starts to have the insomnia. That's why the next day she falls asleep in English class. That's right. Yeah, she desperately yeah, she really wants to stay the, awake. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Her English teacher is the creepy, overly tanned lady from There's Something About Mary. Yep. Also, um, Woody Harrelson's landlord from Kingpin. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, she developed a relationship with the Farrelly brothers, apparently. <laughs> yeah. Yep. But I will yeah, say that she is the highest star meter of uh, of any other actor in that movie, aside from Johnny Depp. Uh yeah, yeah probably yeah. We're the most recognizable anyway. Yeah, that is true. In that same scene is also uh, is Daryl Hannah's younger brother reciting um, from the book at the front of the class. Oh really? Yeah. Did he have a career or is he just? Yeah, he works in film now in some uh, from some angle, uh, like cinematographer or uh, editor oh, okay. or something. I can't remember. Cool. Just a little uh, sneak in that they allowed. A lot of things like that that I imagine go on these low budget horror films where they're just like, who? Get your girlfriend over here or get a friend or we needed three extras. Does anybody know anybody? You know? I like to call it the the Clint Howard phenomenon. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's a good way of looking at it. Yeah. Totally, yeah, he totally got Clint Howarded. Yeah, he did. It's all good. So she, you know, she falls asleep at her desk. And I mean, aside from my previous comments about how she doesn't look fatigued enough or tired enough, um, you know, for the most part, the, the struggle to fall asleep part is, is done relatively well. And the issue that I have with the fatigue and everything is just that I've seen other movies and other performances that, you know, regardless of their merit or your opinion of them, just kind of speak to me what what the expectation should be for committing to a role. Right. And, and the realistic elements that are implied. You can't just 
mail it in. You know, if you're going to do something, do it. Don't mail it in. And in some parts, I feel like as the movie progresses, she should be more fatigued. In this teacher scene, though, things seem natural. She falls asleep. It's believable. Um, she falls asleep and immediately sees, you know, the dead body of her friend. Right. Being dragged uh, down the hallway with a huge blood trail behind it. Yeah, up until we see the fat girl in the hallway with Freddy's glove, that's actually a, a relatively creepy scene. To you, perhaps. To me. And you're going to bring up the whole dream rationalization here, but I... Your friend is dead. Your friend's dead. You saw her, you know, slaughtered corpse the night before. She's dead. You're now right. having a dream. <clears throat> and you see her dead body in a bag being dragged. You don't see her walking or crawling or in any way being animated on its own. You see her body being dragged by something or someone. So you, you know, chase after it in the hallway and and call out Tina? Like, <laughs> come on. <laughs> right, that's why you Tina? can't. You can't hold them accountable for their for their dream behavior. In no, my dreams, I, I I've fought sharks in my dreams. <laughs> I've fought sharks, knowing that they would do damage to me, but somewhere in the back of my head, thinking they'll never kill me. They'll just do egregious damage. I'll still always be alive. And using okay. that logic to use some like dull knife to barely stab into their coarse flesh while just ex- <sighs> really ex- just ex- exhuming in this panic state uh, for twenty minutes. Yeah, that's not Fuck logical. Off. Fuck off! You are not thinking. All right, you're like, oh, yeah, because you're dreaming. You're not. I thinking. fought sharks. That's my. That's, <laughs> that's what I mean. I wouldn't have actually gone. I would never go into the ocean and be like, I can fucking take this guy. No problem. That's my argument. I fought sharks. No, fuck it. It's a dream. I fought sharks. Yeah, that's that's a good enough argument though. <laughs> I would never fight sharks in real it's, life. It's I'm terrified of the argument. open ocean. It's not a good enough argument because a shark is a thing that's alive. And yeah, you but I've had dreams where I would alive. attack a shark. A shark you're that could both, kill me. No, you're both alive. All right, you're you're just doing something irrational. In a dream, you're like, well, fuck right. it, I can take on a shark. Let's She's do this. also doing something irrational in a dream. You are not listening to me, all right? You're choosing to fight a shark in a dream. Both of you are, you know, at opposite corners of a ring, and you're attacking each other and fighting. That's fine. You're making that decision. Whatever. It's irrational, but it's a dream. I forgive you. Same here. This is my comment here. It's not that she goes out and follows, all right? That's fine. It's a dream. She could go out and follow, wondering where the body's being dragged to. But going out and calling out Tina? She's dead. She was dead last night, slaughtered corpse. She's being dragged down the hallway with blood behind her. She's not walking. She's not animated in any way. You don't go out and say, Tina? Tina? Like, it's obvious that she's losing a lot of blood. <laughs> yes, and awake Nancy would be immediately suspicious of this trail of blood. I think that if this is the way they were going to go, they should have had her walking. Should have had Tina walking in the bag with the bag draped over her. They should have had her walking and the blood trail was behind her or whatever. That's fine because you want the blood. It's a horror movie. I get it. 
when she's walking down the hallway without anyone dragging her. Okay, and then when she chases her down the hallway, when the bag turns around, it's Freddy inside the bag. That could have worked, yeah. I'm just saying. That's what I do. I improve on movies, okay? It's a horror movie, sure, but I just think that that would have been more engaging. You would have been like, oh, shit, she's calling, you know, wow, Tina's... Like, you would have got it more. It would have connected more. The fact that she's being dragged by something indicates that she's not alive. Therefore, you don't call out her name. It's irrational. Yeah, I get it's it. It's a dream. It's irrational. She's it is, though. I don't understand how they could, like, accept me fighting the shark, but not her being, like, blind to the fact that her friend is dead, and she should already know that her friend is dead. Because the circumstances but indicate... But she's asleep. She doesn't remember that her friend is dead. It's all wishy-washy. <sighs> she doesn't remember that her friend is dead? She just fell asleep from ultimate fatigue and insomnia because her friend is dead. That's the yeah, only thing... Yeah, but she tell she's asleep, you know? You don't know anything about insomnia, apparently. All right? I've had insomnia, and the thing that's giving you insomnia is the only thing that you think about. It's the thing that you're obsessing about. It's the thing that your mind won't yes, let go when of. when you're awake. It's the yes. reason why you have insomnia. So when right. you fall asleep, your mind, your conscious mind, the thing that's focusing on this one event is going to stop thinking about that event. It's not going to affect your dream in any way. Okay, I get it, all right? There's irrationality. I'm just saying you already agreed. That my example could improve the scene. Yeah, I could come up with a dozen examples that would improve the scene. A I think. dozen examples. A dozen. Mm-hmm. Okay. Number one. Let's go. A dozen. You've got twelve. Let's go. Yeah. Number one. How about no bag? How about Tina seems totally okay? How about it's even weirder? Like, oh, I thought what? And she's totally fine. They do things that they used to do. Walk down the hallway together. She leads her into a bathroom. Uh-oh, she led her into a trap. Freddy's in there. It's a death bath, blaze and bullshit. Something, right? There's, mm. you could or, just like, or she just like, you know, wanders after her and then realizes that on one of her hands is the glove with the blades. There you go. Yeah, nice and subtle. There we go. Taking it back. Mm-hmm. I won't make you do 12. No, they, I, think, and they, I think you were over-exaggerating. I don't think you can do 12. If you admit that you can't not, do 12, then we won't on. do 12. We'll move on. All right, if you want to stick to the fact that you head. can do 12... And you then... give me a day, I'll give you 50. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just saying, for the sake of the walkthrough, you should admit that you can't do 12 right on the spot. No. Well, for, for the sake of saving time, uh, we're going to move on. You just lost, I don't know how many poll votes... No. Oh my god, you're gonna have to go through eleven more. Fuck you. Fuck you. You could do it too. Don't make me do it. Okay. Carry on. Um. <laughs> you shouldn't hey, you shouldn't boast. You're gonna learn this. You shouldn't boast. It affects the poll. <laughs> I could think of two, possibly three better scenes. <laughs> <laughs> Your boasting will become <laughs> Yeah. Wait, wait, how many can I really think about? Honestly, in, in comparison to some of the more egregious special effects in this film, like uh, one of my f- least favorite that I'm surprised you didn't bring up was Freddy's extendo arms at the very beginning. Well, I saw your live tweet about that. Yes, I don't understand what their point was with that. They didn't use it ever again. No, they didn't. I learned I why think, they I did it. I think it's because you oh, said yeah. you learned why, so you can tell me if I'm right. Okay. Um, I think it's because they... They start off this movie with these epic ideas. It's the reason why the first kill scene is so over the top. 
and why the first visit from Freddy has extendo arms. It's because they're trying to do, you know, these crazy ideas that they storyboarded prior to the movie. And as they get deeper into the filming of it, they realize that they become more budget conscious. They become more simplistic. They get more to the point and they, uh, you know, try to make just the movie be effective and at the same time be, you know, cost effective as well. It's actually really accurate. Yeah. It was definitely a budget conscience thing. They had a, uh, a much longer scene that they had filmed involving her trying to get away. And she, she keeps trying to get away in smart ways, but he's always there to counteract her and him extending his arms is like one final, like, you know, uh, disappointment for her that she can't get away. Even in in this wide alley, he just extends his arms out and scrapes the walls, you know? Oh, so the extended arms are actually like the climax of a scene that never happened. They got cut. Exactly, yeah. <sighs> Brutal. And on, I wish they honestly would have just cut that scene, including the one, like, listening to the commentary, they really liked the scene where they had Freddy running towards Tina at the beginning, and then she turns around, and Freddy's right behind her. And in order to film that scene, they had to get a stuntman to play the Freddy that's running at her, and then have Robert England be right behind her in full makeup. As like as like one uncut shot, but the stuntman they used is like five foot six, and he's wearing Robert England's clothes, who's like six foot five. So he looks like this goofy little boy in big boy's clothing that's like running down the street, making like nineteen sixties vampire gestures. <laughs> that's like my least favorite scene in the whole movie. Is that? Let's see. All right. So she goes off. Uh, she gets drawn into a cat and mouse chase with uh, Freddy Krueger. She winds up in the same boiler room that Tina was in. Little side note, that uh, is an old prison that they're filming those scenes in, and that prison is now condemned because it is flush with asbestos. So the crew and cast were put at risk to film there, but I guess uh, the ability to pump actual steam through the pipes in that old prison, uh, it was worth it. Because I guess according to effects artists in the horror world steam trumps fog machines every time well let's be upfront that asbestos used to be viewed differently that's true and there's a shit ton of people out there that have been impacted by asbestos because of the perception that it used to have right so i wouldn't isolate that to this i would say that it's cat and mouse chase not Cat and Chase Mouse. <laughs> Did I say Cat and Chase Mouse? <laughs> Continue. <laughs> Not in the edit, I didn't. <laughs> Fucking bullshit. <laughs> right. And then she discovers a way to wake herself up when she pushes her forearm against the hot pipe and burns herself into reawakening in the middle of class. That's like the first moment that I connected with her as a hero. Yes, yeah, someone right. that had the ability to escape the dream and control the outcome of the movie. Yeah. That was the first moment. Where I was like, all right, Nancy. All right. Badass. I'm with you. I'm with you. Let's beat Freddy. Let's take him down. Yeah. She shows some uh, gumption. And I thought that her, for not being a, a scream queen, I thought her scream when she wakes up in the classroom was pretty good. Mm-hmm. And Lynn Shea looks like actually kind of scared. So that's kudos to her. No, I don't want to imply that, you know, Heather Langenkamp is not, did not do a good job. 
no, no, no. Uh, nor was there's... I implying that you were implying that. I okay, agree that she's not the screen queen of the film, but f- so as a non-screen queen, that was a good screen. That's all. I don't know enough about screen queens to have a valid opinion. It's just you—you you can tell the difference between a an actor that can cry and an actor that can't. And I'm think, just appealing to my audience. I, I think I got to be honest. I got to be same. honest. You know, gotcha. when when people vote for me in the poll, I want them to know that I'm not. I'm not pulling any punches. I'm not trying to lie to them. I'm not trying to decorate my answers with, mm-hmm. you know, dream world this and ether that. I'm just like, bring yeah, it. Nathan, fuck that bring shit. It. That cunt should have known her friend was dead. <laughs> I'm just bringing it real, baby. <laughs> oh, yeah. Right, but vital lesson learned. You can cause yourself to wake up. I'm not sure if it's really vital to the rest of the film, but you learned that there regardless. And weird, Nancy just walks home. She just, like, leaves school. I don't know if that was a thing back then. Like, you could just leave campus because you wanted to. But it was kind of locked down when I went to school. If you wanted to get off campus, you had to have forms and kind of see some people. Otherwise, the cops outside that kind of patrol would give you some questions. Like, where the fuck do you think you're going? She's just hmm. like, oh, I had a bad dream. I'm going to go home. <laughs> I would say that your experience is abnormal. Is it? You could just walk home from your school, no questions asked? Yeah. Oh, all right. Maybe that's an American thing. Or it's a Texas thing. I guess. It wasn't like there was lockdown or metal detectors. There was just like one cop that was kind of the truancy cop that kind of sat by the exit and kind of give you the eye and flag you over if you tried to leave. You know, you'd have a reason. I'm pretty sure if you polled enough people, you would find that Texas probably rates fairly high in the the area of people want to be important and hold guns that would be all right duly noted it might be a little bit more clamped down here than not and that might be the reason why i found that scene odd fair enough fair enough um she walks home is this when ronnie blakely her mom marge thompson is this when she no there's something oh okay okay now okay it's coming back to me now now i remember now i remember now i remember okay she starts getting suspicious about this shit after her dream at school she starts to talk to Johnny Depp about it. Uh, sorry, Glenn. Uh, Glenn is kind of like, whatever, you know, it's fucking dreams. Who gives a shit? And so she's like, okay, so I can't oh, really Was that to the Glenn scene on the bridge? It. No, not yet. That's when they decide to, like, actually go through with it and kill the motherfucker. This is mm. when she's just sort of learning. So she talks to Glenn. Glenn's not really any help. Um, so she goes and talks to Rod at jail. And that's when Rod finally breaks down and confesses. He's like, listen, I had this dream about this mm, dude. I didn't, I didn't think it was the important, catalyst but now I think is, it is. Oh, yeah, the catalyst is Rod dying. Yeah, that's Rod, Rod dying. Yeah. She goes and talks to Rod. She is convinced that Rod didn't do it. She goes back and explains it to Johnny Depp, who is kind of convinced because he's kind of had dreams too, but he's not really admitting it. The two of mm-hmm. them go back to the jail to be like, hey, listen. And then the laziest cop in the world, one of those classic cops that's like, this is my night shift. I'm supposed to be eating Cheetos right now. What the fuck is going on? Why are you so emotional? They come in. They talk to that guy. John Saxon comes out. And in a very, like, left turn from normal horror tropes, actually gives his daughter some credit and believes her panic and allows them to go and talk to Rod. And as they're going back in, in the meantime, Freddy Krueger has been in there weaving the sheet around Rod's neck. And as they're walking down the hallway to Rod's cell, he gets dragged out of his bed and up against the window and hanged. 
And that's when they bust in, find his dead body. John Saxon grabs the dead body and throws it right onto his daughter. And they just kind of sit there and stare at his cold body and freak out for a while. And after that event, the funeral happens. And at the funeral, Nancy brings up that she's been having dreams about a guy in a fedora and a red and green sweater with claws on his hands and a burned face. John Saxon and Ronnie Blake look at each other like, oh, shit, she's having dreams about that guy that we killed. And that's when Ronnie Blakely takes Nancy straight to the, the Katja Institute. Nailed it. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And I actually like um, I like what they do with the whole Rod thing. I like Freddy killing him by making him look like he killed himself. Right. This is where you, and they, the, the the twist into the catch Katja Institute is uh, very believable, actually, just the, the way that it develops. You don't really pick up too much on the fact that they're hiding the truth or anything. It just seems like she's losing her mind, you know, that it's obvious to them. That's how it plays. You may be manipulated by the fact that you know where it's going, so you're, you know, talking about the characters' intentions in the scenes, but from... An outside first viewing perspective, it comes across as, you know, he killed himself. It's obvious. Honey, what's wrong? You're talking about what? A psychopath with, okay, blades on his, what, what not? Time right, to take her. Time Nancy's to take her. parents kind of know that something's up. They, they do, and there may be confliction when you look at them, but to a first like to someone who went to see this movie in 1984 in the theater, they don't pick up on that. Right. They see Rod killed himself. And, you know, if, if they try to put themselves in the perspective of the parents, the parents see that Rod obviously killed himself and that there's no other reason and that she's losing her mind and that she's right. having issues and she needs to go to the sleep institute because she's talking about dreams and nightmares and she's having trouble sleeping. So let's focus on that first. Right. So that's where they take her. They're addressing the situation. And that whole sequence there is very, it flows well. It, it I have no problem with it. Oh yeah. Yeah. That plays out really well. A uh, little dated when you see Marge smoking in the clinic and then Nancy starts to freak out. They have to go into the room where Nancy is sleeping to wake her up and that's when Nancy exposes that she's brought Freddy Krueger's fedora back from the nightmare world mm-hmm. and that's what and, really and sends why, it home for why March. do we know that it's Freddy Krueger's fedora because we've seen his shadow with it on no or it mentioned because his name is written in it <laughs> Right, but we don't. We learn that later, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because Freddie wrote his name in his hat. Hey. That's really lame. Maybe nobody pre- writes their fucking name in a hat. All right, they wrote it in his hat because they were overthinking it. Because we don't oh god, it. we anyone, don't know it now. Well, because they, when they were thinking about it, when they were developing the movie, they were like, "Oh Jesus, anybody could wear a fedora." <laughs> How does the mom know that this is Freddy's fedora? 
Well, well, we'll just write Freddy on the inside. He just wrote it because the, the pre the pre burned and slaughtered Freddy Krueger mm. was a downtrodden janitor. Oh, a simpleton! Makes, a simpleton. He's his just name a simpleton. Was, his name was written on everything. You've got his, that in a note somewhere. His fedora <laughs> was probably the most expensive item to his name. Fuck off! How did she get it out of the dream world? Sitting there next to his mop and bucket, thinking There's about himself no being Indiana Jones, just twirling the fedora around in his fingers. I better There's, write my name in no. this. Somebody There's might no, steal this from me. There's no precedence for this. There's no precedence for her taking an item of his clothing back from the dream world into this world. There is. The shredded clothing, the way that, the way that they carry injuries over. No, the injuries and an actual item of clothing? Come on. It's just, no. I don't, the item of clothing is a bit of a jump from I'm, being injured, but yeah, is, there is precedence. It. I'm not with it. It means that she has a, a stronger connection, right? Like, if, if they had done it properly, if they had justified it by saying that she has a stronger connection to the dream world, you know, with the ability to affect Freddy more than others. And I think that's what their intention was, that this special... Girl of all the people that lynched her, I think in their mind when they wrote the movie or when Wes Craven envisioned the movie, right? This is the problem. This is the problem with fighting for funding because your initial concept probably has a lot more detail to why things happen and why they are the way they are. Oh, absolutely. And, and, yeah. the, and the justification and the reasoning for things. And then when you actually get to the moment where you turn the camera on and you realize everything costs money, you run into problems, you have to cut things, you have to just try to get your point across as quickly as motherfucking possible without, you know, losing the point and losing the, 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 the whole impact of the movie. In my mind, it would be way more effective or the point that would, that Wes Craven probably intended was to say, that in relationship to other dream experiences, this special character, the reason why she's the main character is because she has more effect, has the ability to affect Freddy more than other people. Right. Had, she, yeah, and had she, they executed that with some sort of example in some other scene that was probably written and deleted, whether in his mind or on paper, I don't know, but it, it would it would bring justification to her ability to bring Freddy out of the dream world more and exposes weaknesses, which would go on to create more stability to the inconsistencies later on in the movie. But as it stands, what they presented to me, I got to call foul. I got to call. There is no precedence for the hat. No, the precedence for the hat exists. It exists. Not, not only through the examples of our evaluation of what was intended, maybe, but not in what was presented. You're taking a jump. You're taking a leap. No, okay, well, this might be a little bit of a leap. Maybe you can follow me on this, all right? Let's say that if Freddy's coming back to exact revenge on the children of the parents who killed him, he's going to go after the children whose parents had the strongest involvement first, right? So we can assume that Tina's parents were probably right in there, right in the mix, right? Rod is questionable. He kind of provided like a hurdle in the story towards getting towards Nancy. So I'm not sure if his parents also had really strong involvement or if he was just someone that was in the way and had to be taken care of. So he's questionable. But Nancy's next. So her parents had a really strong involvement. She's next on the list. He's going after her real hard. She's providing smart, intelligent resistance to his attacks, so much so that he almost respects her for it. 
there was definitely a strong attachment between Freddy Krueger and Nancy, more so than the other characters at this point. Not just because his desire to exact revenge on her is so strong because she's so far up in the list, but because she provides such strong resistance to him that he makes the revenge more fun to exact. I'm going to call so bullshit. So she would have more power than anyone, hence the power to bring forth items of clothing. I'm going to call absolute bullshit on this. Oh? Yeah. I'm going to call you out right now. All right. I'm going to call you out because I know, just by looking at her name on IMDb Pro, I knew from the beginning of watching this movie that she's in other Nightmare on Elm Street movies, which means there is a greater relationship that develops between her and Freddy. And I think that you're exploiting that greater relationship and applying it to this movie without the relationship existing yet. No, no, no. I explained it only within the parameters of this film. I call bullshit because I don't see it. I didn't go out to say that Nothing that Freddy does that shows respect to her. Nothing that Freddy does in this movie shows respect to her. That indicates any sort of developed relationship between her and him and any respect that he has towards her. I think you're, you're combining movies together in your mind. No, no. He toys with her. He lets her get away. He lets her get away. She gets away. He chooses to kill those around her instead of her. Yeah, this she's is so, the foundation. She's so difficult to get. This is the foundation for the relationship that develops in later movies. I'm, right. I'm That's what I'm sure. saying. So it's her ability to get away from him that that creates that respect. That's why I'm saying the relationship develops throughout the series, not yeah. in this movie. No, no. no even within jumping. this movie. Fucking admit it. I'm sick and tired of this game that no, you're playing. No, 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 no. This part in particular, I'm not playing. Well, then give me a fucking example of, of a real example of Freddy. Really, there's progression respect. in this film. She goes from only being able to notice him to being able to get away from him to being able to pull items of his back from the other world to being able to pull him back from the other world. As the movie progresses, she gets stronger. Their attachment gets stronger. His relationship, or her relationship to him, becomes strong, so strong that at the very, very end, not okay, only can but, she pull it to the side, all, she can ignore him this, completely. This whole argument is through assumptive action. That the the actions in the movie are what you're making these assumptions based on, and I think you're imprinting this whole thing based on what happens later in the series. But why? I haven't had to to pull from anything outside of this particular movie to make this. Point. Yeah, you have. No, I haven't. They don't, okay, whatever. They don't do it well. They don't, they don't. Well, that's a different they thing. They don't give you a why. They don't give you a why. They don't show that the relationship is growing between the two of them other than to say that she has the ability to pull his items through and then him through. Uh, and and that it's her that's doing it. Like, like nothing that she has learned like, there's there's no mentor character about dreams there's no teaching of dreams there's no there's no nothing there's no there's no there's nothing given to you as an audience to give you any sort of credibility to her ability within the dream world to do anything more or that she's even of, improving yes of course all that all you that you're saying about? is that she's getting more and more fatigued with your lines under the eyes which i can't see um leading towards you know the ultimate Climax, which isn't even a climax, it's just a plateau. So I don't. But no, no, no. no there's absolutely. There, of there's, course, she develops her it's, skill it's, over the time. She even does it consciously <sighs> and actively. 
it's like you're telling me what the movie tried to do instead no, no, of telling no, no, me I'm what not. it did. No, I'm not. She goes from noticing that her friend's story relates to hers. Then she becomes suspicious. Then she has a dream when she encounters and she realizes that causing herself pain can pull her out of the dream. That's a skill right there. Then she has her boyfriend sit guard and watch her as she consciously goes into the dream to test out some of her theories. Whoa, 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 and she's whoa, whoa, definitely whoa, whoa. getting better. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Glenn is a failure. Yeah, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah. He yeah, doesn't he help her in any way. No, he doesn't. No. 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 That, that we can agree upon. Yeah. So why doesn't? Uh, I mean, it would have helped if he actually was money, once or twice, because it would have helped establish her ability to test out the dream world. She did. She <sighs> for she foresaw Glenn's own uh, shittiness by setting a backup alarm. All which I'm is saying what she is, actually wakes up to in that scene. She does wake up to an alarm, but there's no like indication that it's a backup. It's just like, oh, thank God, well, well, isn't a, it? It's, no, it's what a deus. It fuck off! It's a Deus Ex Machina, man. It's the hand of God what coming you in and saving an alarm the day. Just in case your friend watching you doesn't also show her setting the alarm, does it? It doesn't. Doesn't. You're right, but it shows her turning it off. It doesn't show her being thoughtful enough to set off the alarm. It just shows the alarm going off. Does a movie have to show you someone driving somewhere for you to realize that they've driven there? If you're going to use the fact that she had the foresight to set a backup alarm as a part of the argument, then she has to set the backup alarm on screen in front of me for it to be relevant. That's fair. I I would also demand a precursor of the alarm showing up in some capacity. Okay, so it would be more effective then if you would just fucking agree with me and say no, it would be I nice. It would don't be, agree. No, don't, don't, no, it no, would no, be no. nice, but no. I think it's fine Stop as is. Stop this whole interruption nonsense and just listen to me for a second and say it would be nice if the first time that she asked Glenn for help, he actually pulled through and helped her, helped her understand the dream world and train herself in the dream world. Give some credibility to her improving her ability to impact the dream world. Of course, but he's a douche. I understand that he's a douche, and I understand that they didn't choose to do that. They chose to use a deus ex machina instead, instead of showing that she created a backup alarm. But it, they, it just shows, it shows, they it shows cut you know what it shows? It shows inconsistency. Really important it, to you. It, it portrays inconsistency and randomness. It doesn't portray any sort of thought out nonsense. It shows that they were flying by the seat of their pants trying to throw this movie together with a limited budget, and they made it work enough to have success. But no, but this why is another are so example why are of where they... so different then. Wow. When what? I saw the alarm clock, I didn't go, that's some bullshit they threw in to save the scene. I thought, oh, she must have set that beforehand because she knows her boyfriend's a douche. No. Okay. You know what I did when the what? alarm went off? I pushed the Staples easy button. Yeah, see, no, I did not think that. That was not my first. I see how you could think that. Was Oh, thank goodness! That, but doesn't that, that make sense? If that, you were going to try moment, your sleep, theory, that vital you moment the where she needed to get out of the dream, she was pulled out of the dream by an alarm that just randomly went off. Oh, thank goodness! That was easy. No, no, no! Now you're backfiring on your older argument. You were blaming her for not being smart before, and now you're holding it against. I'm saying her. you agree that there should have been a precursor, so you're actually putting your foot in your mouth right now. No, no, I'm saying that would have been better, but I think it works fine as is. I assume that she set that alarm clock. I didn't think, oh, they retro edited that so oh, that there was a reason so for her to wake up. so wonderful that you can just you know, make these assumptions and give credit to 
awful movies when if it wasn't a horror movie, you'd be chewing it to shit. You wouldn't be giving it any leeway at all. We'll never know. No, I'll know. You'll pretend that you don't know, and the audience will vote me in the poll. Mm, not the way I'm going to edit this thing. <laughs> Just really crude, too, like like Simpsons crude. <laughs> okay, the point that we're making here is that they don't effectively establish that she is learning how to interact with the dream world more effectively as time progresses in the movie. That's their intention. Nathan but thinks they don't, that they don't. They don't I've proven that they do. No. How do you vote? No, we've not proven. Fuck off. We haven't proven anything. We have explained. I have explained and you have debated. Strongly. Whatever. That the scenes that exist here are, are meant to create a culmination of her engagement with the dream world that's growing and she's learning and she's becoming better at interacting with it. And that's their intention, but their intention is, you know, not portrayed or not, not, uh, not, not filmed as well as it could have been filmed. Well, you can say that about anything. I think it's there. She goes from scared girl to experimenting See, with dream theories it, to researching a, booby traps. That's a like, fucking a definite cop, progression. That's a fucking cop out. It's not a cop out. It's a definite progression. Oh yeah, her wonderful booby trap with like okay, you can look at it one of two ways. All right, I was confused at the end of the movie. <laughs> it was a little weird. <laughs> it was a little weird. I was confused as to why he was now able. Like okay, because she brought him out. Exactly, but we've we've come to that conclusion during this podcast. I have come to that conclusion during this podcast that that's what the progression was for. That all of those things that happened throughout the movie, she was learning how to interact with the dream world. The hat, you know, I, I get it now. That that's that that's what it was trying to say, but right. it didn't effectively communicate that. Because when I watched the movie at the end, I was like, "Why the fuck can he not get out of that room?" He walked through cell bars. He walked through Rod's prison cell bars. Like, you know, Robert Patrick in Terminator 2. He just, like, mm-hmm. but he that just was walked through him. Through Rod's dream. Yeah, whatever. They were watching him. So I guess it was all of their dreams. And that he just had more control than they did. No, no, no. Nancy only sees him control. in that cell when she's also dreaming. When no one's dreaming, you don't see Freddy. You only see the sheets moving. I know I'm saying all of their dreams is what I said. I didn't say that only Rod was dreaming. I was saying that all of them were dreaming. Otherwise, they wouldn't be able to see Freddy. I agree. However. Right. Okay. Yeah. So he has more control over the dream world at that point, obviously, because he has the ability to go through the, the bars. Okay. And then later on in the movie, she has more control. But they don't really explain to you why she has more control. They don't give you any substantial anything to to rely on okay just, that, that 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 could be a fair argument right so at the end of the movie you're left with okay he can't get out of this room with this bullshit lock on the door this is freddy fucking krueger buddy right he's supposed to be he's supposed to be a serious motherfucker but yeah, he can't but get out of the fucking room with a bullshit lock on the door with a with a what, what is that that's like the kind of lock they use on 
bathroom stalls in public washrooms. That's all that's stopping him from opening that door. And the sledgehammer, like she read the book about booby traps, so the sledgehammer's supposed to do it. Like that whole thing about the the booby trap book was to set up this one moment where he gets winded by us by a sledgehammer that slows him down for what a couple seconds and then he keeps going and like i'm sorry man but certain times in life you got to say to yourself okay yeah i get what they were after they were trying to create some sort of progression towards a moment that would culminate in in a, in a wonderful ending to the movie but really all it did was fail and I'm sorry, the sledgehammer and booby trap thing was a fucking failure. And the lock on the door was a fucking failure. Epic no. fail. <clears throat> All right, yeah, two things. Uh, one, everything you just described and the way you just described it is a, a good argument to that the art, that the movie did not explain to you what was happening. Two, I also agree. Not Thank a big you for fan your validation. Of- not a big fan of booby trap scenes. It's why I didn't like the most recent Bond that much. But the whole point is that Freddy only has those invincibility powers in the dream world. When she pulls him out into the real world, he's just a human being, a man, that can't open doors and gets hurt by sledgehammers to the chest. Yeah, but see, I mean, after doing this podcast with you, I get that now. And I can right, but you're saying that. it didn't explain it to you very well. That that's yeah, I'm happening. saying that, that they failed to communicate that in the movie right. very good well point. at all. That's a good point. They spent a lot of time with useless shit that didn't need to be there, and they spent not enough time focusing on that. That's what they should have focused on. I would have to agree with that. And and you're and I'm going to lean on you for this point because you're coming at this fresh. You watched the movie with no prior knowledge, and that's what you came away with. So I, I think you have the stronger uh, uh, leverage in this argument because I do. I can't say that I come to this unbiased. I come to this completely biased, not just in terms of my understanding of the lore of the series, but even my love for these films. So I can't say that my prior knowledge doesn't make me realize that it's very obvious that outside of the dream world, Freddy is vulnerable to everything. And we kind of just sort of confrontationally... <laughs> strode our way through the Katja Institute to Heather actually pulling Freddy Krueger into the real world and defeating him. Well, I think that's the point is that after the Katja Institute, it just, that's it. It, it, uh, that's the, the showdown happens right there. So, I mean, the one thing we glanced over is the fact that, uh, when she comes home from the Katja Institute, she overhears her mom on the phone, uh, talking about, you know, she had the hat. I'm not going crazy. I got the hat in my hand. And she confronts her, takes her downstairs. Creepy, you know, mementos inside the wood furnishing. Yeah, no, no they have the confrontation in the kitchen first where uh, well, Heather gets, gets gets real lippy and she gets smacked. Yeah, and she lies about the fact that she doesn't... She threw away the hat or something. Mm-hmm. And she... and and. and she was like, here's um, the hat. <laughs> Nancy's mom is hiding the booze behind her back uh, on the counter. Yeah, and it's so obvious. She's such a boozer. <laughs> it's such a boozer. And listening to the commentary was so funny because you know how you can tell when people want to say a whole bunch of stuff about somebody, but they are reserving dignity for that person, so they just kind of keep silent and say really vague things? That happened all throughout that commentary when they were referring to the actress Ronnie Blakely. 
She like changed her hair color like 15 times throughout the movie. Whenever she got makeup done, she immediately ran back to her trailer and spent the next hour redoing all the makeup. So they never knew like what shade of color she'd be when she came on set or if the editors were going to have problems like mixing her scenes together. Um, she like started to take the role of being the drunken mom really, really seriously. And Wes Craven actually cracks up when Ronnie Blakely is like in the hallway with booze in her hand and an open robe. And she like lights her cigarette when Nancy walks in and is pissed off that there's bars on the windows. And she's like, come in the basement. <laughs> He's like, she tried to take over the movie right there. And he laughs it away and they move on. But you know, it was a big deal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. She seems a little bit melodramatic. Now mm-hmm. that you, now that you bring that up, she seems very over the top all the time. So we've talked about Ronnie Blakely boozing. We've talked about the transition from the Kachi Institute to Nancy bringing Freddie out of her dream. There's her in engaging with Depp on the bridge. She exposes her booby trap system. He mentions to her the idea of taking his power away by not being afraid of him and turning her back on him. A very esoteric ending for an otherwise gruesome and visceral movie. Um, and that's literally what happens. You know, She pulls him out of her dream. She, he goes through all of her booby traps. And when her father finally breaks into the house to come and save her, they realize Freddy's gone. Where is he? He snuck off to Ronnie Blakely's room, where earlier Nancy has tucked in her own mother and stole booze out of the folds of the sheets to make sure her mom's not drinking while she's sleeping. And Freddy's just on top of her, strangling her while he's on fire, effectively setting her on fire. The two of them just sink into the bed, right? Um, yeah, but they, it's almost like he's gone. And she's... Yeah, he kind of disappears. We get like a, like a spooky image of the mom's bones kind of reaching it's, up, right? It's almost like she's just the only one disappearing and Freddy has, has used that moment as an escape almost. Right, that yeah. He is, that he has regained his power. And I don't, I wouldn't have thought about it that way when I first watched it, but now after our conversation... I'm thinking about it more in terms of him regaining his mojo, like that she brought him out of the dream world, trapped him in the room, derailed him, put him off balance, lit him on fire. You know, he gets on he he gets on top of her, and regains his focus and vanishes back into the dream world, and takes mom with him. Possibly because mom was having nightmares about Freddy. Possibly. Be- you, you you could argue that, but you'd have to go back and really pay attention to what she was doing prior to that scene. If she right. was sleeping. She, she is in bed and she's kind of drunk. Okay. Well, then there's precedence to, to say. Because that'd be good. That, I, did, I didn't even think about what you said about him regaining power. It's a good point. And if he was going to regain power, well, he has she to, was right? sleeping because dreaming of him, right? The, the end of the movie is is the inception ending. You know, it's the, right. it's, it's the top is spinning and you don't know whether they're in the dream world or in reality or what has occurred and what hasn't. And it just leaves you hanging. Right. Right. So it's like, uh, yeah. Um, he does have to regain his power because of the way that it ends. So he does have to reposition himself as the power player. Right. So then this is weird then. So while the mom and him disappear into the bed, he's off regaining his power through the power of, 
Marge Thompson's nightmares, allegedly, in our theory here, in our hypothetical, which means that when he pops out of the sheets again to attack Nancy and she turns her back on him, does that mean that he's hidden the mom's body away somewhere so that it can still continue to dream so that he has power? Because if Ronnie Blakely is just dead, then she can't dream about him anymore and he has no ability to pop back up into Nancy's world, right? Or did he just kill her and hide in the bed somewhere and then pop back out as a vulnerable human being? Uh, that part, I'm a little lost. I don't know. I think if you if you go with the progression of the movie um, and how it escalates, you would have to assume, because that's what we do with this movie, we make assumptions. Um, <laughs> that... Um, <laughs> said that with such disdain, <laughs> such seething well, because disdain. The, the way, if you look at progression, right, like her progression with her, her relationship to Freddy increases, her ability to impact him increases, but also, also, his, um, his vicious, um, the, the way that he kills people gets more intense. You would say that Johnny Depp's death is incredibly, yeah, like almost overwhelmingly, you know, more vicious than his previous attacks. Like she, he, you know, they, they make a very good point. Like he, he seems to be, and you could almost relate it to the other progression. So her ability to impact him has pissed him off and made him want to get to her even more. So he goes after her boyfriend. <clears throat> not yes. only does he yes. kill, not only mm-hmm. does he kill the boyfriend, he kills him in such a way that the coroner has to, you know, puke in the bathroom because he can't handle, because <laughs> he can't handle what he, no, they make a point of saying that, right? So you got, oh yeah, they do. You got to take that into account that, you know, he's, the coroner's puking the bathroom. So, you know, the guy that's supposed to be able to deal with this shit can't deal with it. Yeah, Freddie liquefied Glenn. Yeah, he liquefied Glenn, right? So then if you take the progression, then, you know, it's almost like he consumes her mother to yes. get to get back to 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 reestablish his, you know, his footing against yeah. her in this, you know, strange battle that they're having. Yes, I like where you're going. So, you know, he, you know, because it it almost has like that blue light to her when she disappears. Like, there's no blood. Right? Which is weird, right? It's like, it's not anywhere else in the film. Right. So she disappears inside of the mattress with like blue light, almost like he's consuming her. Consuming her soul, perhaps. You could even, you could even go to, right? So he's like totally digesting her entity to regain his own strength and comes at her and she denies him in the full climax of the moment. The thing that Glenn taught her to do. <clears throat> Long live Lance. And <laughs> and she turns on him and, and stays true to it. And he has no power after that, right? So then, he so then after that, it's like back to the fact that he only has power in the dream world. That she is dreaming about Glenn and everybody in the car. And the cover comes down and and that's where he has power against her is in the dream world that she's separated now her ability to have power against him in the real world so it's almost like he's afraid to 
you know, that's what I anticipate actually for the second movie is that he's afraid to meet her on her her terms because he knows where he has power and he knows that she's strong enough to beat him in the real world. Uh, that's true. He doesn't want to get too close. Doesn't want to get pulled back through again. Yeah. He's going to be a little more careful with Nancy in the future. Yeah, I think you're right. So I think I have actually gotten way too involved in this movie right now. I think you just got properly involved right here at the end <laughs> is what I think. I've been waiting for this for two hours. <laughs> Right. It's going to burn off sooner. It wouldn't be so bright. Feeling better? Oh, I feel like a million bucks. They say you've bottomed out when you can't remember the night before. No, baby, I'm going to stop drinking. I just don't feel like it anymore. But Daniel, I have one question to ask. How does it stack? <laughs> oh, t- I fucking love you. How does it stack? <laughs> what is stack? Sex, tone, and creative kills. Not a whole lot of sex in this movie, Nathan. There was a tiny bit. Where was it? Did you notice it? Rod and Tina at the beginning. Johnny was jealous. They had sex. Johnny was jealous. That was our one actual sex scene. Our only and sex scene. we did harp primarily me, about the old-school way that they insinuated sexuality before you could go on the Internet and just ask for it and be presented with it. You you had to watch movies and be teased by it, which was, honestly, to all of you young kids out there, so much better. It really is. Like a braless girl in a men's button-up T-shirt, or mm. men's button-up mm. shirt. I gotta tell you. It doesn't sound very exciting with a Victoria's Secret catalog in the bathroom, but my God, after you watch a couple movies where they just tease you a little bit and you don't really ever get to see boobs, ever, I know it's hard for you to imagine, but like there, picture, there the internet, boob scene. picture the internet out of the question, like out of the equation completely. The internet doesn't exist, and all you have is movies with these little scenes where you have to pause on a VHS tape, rewind, pause, play, you know. Like, it's just a um, totally different experience. Like, you just, you know, you really had to use your imagination. Oh, yeah. Being an adolescent in the late 80s, early 90s, uh, you spent half of your jerking off time with technical administrative skills. <laughs> with, with your eyes closed. Mm-hmm. Descrambling the scramble box. If you switch the channels real fast, you get a glimpse. Uh, there's lots of things. That's what I would say. That would be a true statement. The difference between growing up in the 80s and 90s and now is you'd masturbate with your eyes closed. That is that is a profound statement. I think That's so. the difference between our generations is we used to masturbate with our eyes closed. I think there's so. Not, there's probably no more succinct way to say that. Mm. Tone. Tone. I think it's trying to be a horror movie. Oh, wait, 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 wait. We forgot a very important part of the sex part. There's the sex scene with Tina and Gray, but there are breasts in this film. When Nancy gets pulled down in the tub, there's an underwater shot where you see a naked woman and you see her breasts. But it's not Heather Langenkamp. It's a body double. It's actually Jim Doyle's girlfriend, Jim Doyle, the effects coordinator, who is the man assembling the glove in the first scene of this movie. 
And they filmed that shot by building a stage set house piece that was two stories, even though it looks one story. So it was a second story underneath that bathtub. Heather Langenkamp is sitting on a plank of wood so that she doesn't fall into the tank below. And they just pull that plank of wood down when she's supposed to get sucked down in the water. But they had already wrapped all of the essential scenes for the movie. Everyone had gotten super, super hammered. And then they were like, oh, yeah, we have to do that nude underwater scene. And so a bunch of hungover camera specialists got into scuba tank gear and hopped into the water. And somebody almost died by getting tangled in the black tarp. (laughs) (laughs) Um, That doesn't help this movie stack up. No, it doesn't. But there's boobs, but they're not Heather Langenkamp's boobs. Unfortunately, she was too embarrassed to show them in 1984. But if you go to Nickel Mountain in 1985, you can get your fair share. Wonderful. That's all the sex, though. Not a whole lot of sex in this one. Nope. Surprising. I expect to see more in Friday the 13th. Right? You feel like the, the, the nudity has to get amped up for sequels. Um, I imagine it will. I imagine they will push it. Right. But, uh, again, I don't know. I mean, I, my my experience with these movies is not... I know. That's what's so fascinating. So, let's move on to Tone. Tone, I this was trying to be a horror movie. Uh, I'm not sure what we're after here with the atmosphere-tone conversation because I don't know... Like, I think we've we've already pointed out some serious flaws in its presentation. So if, if atmosphere and tone speak to presentation, then I would say it failed. But if you're talking about overall um, ambience, um, I guess, I think you would be the one to answer this question because you are a horror connoisseur. You'd be able to relate it to other horror movies' ambience and say if it set precedence or not, or if it copied something that came before it. I don't know. That's a good point. Maybe this tone... Um, part of how the movie stacks up will morph into something different over time. Uh, I initially envisioned it as just being the tone of the film itself because these horror franchises tend to lose their horror aspect over time as directors get lazy and they become more uh, meta comedies or there's even the rare case where some, some of them revert back and become like suspense thrillers almost. And you almost never ever see the actual villain or lunatic, you know, maybe like a, the original aliens might be a good example, more a suspense, uh, than an outright, you know, monster horror. I would, I would suggest that maybe what we're after is not tone. Maybe we're talking more about tact. Tact. All right. I'm down with tact. Did it, it's an equ- equally did it, pretentious word. Did it execute? Did it mm. uh, Did it follow through with what That's, its intention was? Okay, yeah, okay. I'm, I'm done with that. Kill creativity. Kill creativity. Not a um, lot to work with here either. You'll notice uh, a low body count. I don't know. Well, I mean, yeah. Right, you don't know. We, we don't have much comparison yet. I don't have right. much comparison. I would say that for kill for creativity... Um, given that I don't have much to draw from, I would say sucking someone into the middle of a mattress and liquefying him is fairly creative. <laughs> right? Well, let's, let's go through it. There's four kills in this movie. The, f- the first four? one is... There's only four? There's only four. Body count is four. The body count is four. The first okay. one is Tina. Tina. Who gets dragged across the room and chopped up. Yeah. Hunk of or, beef. Uh, 
flopping on the side of the bed. Not too creative. Made me think of The Exorcist with the climbing on the walls. I don't know if they climb on the walls in The, in the Exorcist, but it made me think of being pose- of, of possession. Like it made me think of that. Because there's probably right, other they, movies out there where previews have shown possession and they climb on the walls. They do that. Yeah, I agree. So it, it, made me, show- it made me relate to possession movies. I was like, well, she's not being possessed. She's being attacked in her dream. And it just fucked with me and I didn't agree with it. So I'm going to give uh, low scores to the first kill. <laughs> well, no, that's, that's an intuitive point of yours to make because truly the only actually horrifying horror movies are ones that take a really strong religious overtone and undertone. But... Yeah, to to bring up the censorship that was going on at the time, uh, Wes Craven actually had to re-edit that scene where she falls from the ceiling onto the bed because the splash of blood that she produced was so offensive. They wouldn't let it through, so he had to like make it seem less splattery, which I thought was so weird. Like, really? Splatter? That was your big concern? Was splatter? Not a half-naked woman like gurgling on the ceiling getting eviscerated by invisible claws it was the splatter of blood but yeah that was a big deal in 1984 so tina dies next is rod in the prison strangled by a sheet third is glenn which you i guess you well wait a minute thought it was shitty but now kind of enjoyed his death is that right i, is that I, the tone en- I enjoyed the rod death in context with the movie I, I, it was effective for the movie's purpose, but as a kill itself, relatively boring. Relatively boring. I would say that the highest marks for a kill in this movie go to Glenn, liquefying, and the whole coroner thing in the bathroom, like that gave way to the whole, you know, mockery of itself. Perhaps giving birth to horror movies, making fun of themselves. Maybe that one scene with the coroner. Yep. Interesting fact about that Johnny Depp dying scene is that they used the same room that they twisted around for the effects for Tina. They twisted the room upside down and then poured 80 gallons of blood through the ceiling so that it splashed against the fake ceiling on the bottom. And then while they were all standing around, the crew was all standing around watching this, they were like, hey, let's turn the room and get the blood to go down the walls so that it looks really cool. And then when they did that, the blood flew out of all the fake windows in the set of that room and flew all over the electronic, all over the electric equipment and uh, short-circuited the entire set and shocked half the crew. Okay. I like that shit. I like learning that shit. That shit's okay. interesting to me. That's, okay, well, I'm sure we can look forward to many more gems like that. That's why when you watch the commentary or you go and rewatch it, and then you can pick up on these things after the fact. I I won't lie. I do. I did enjoy the fact that you just contributed that. But in terms of kill creativity, it doesn't. Right, doesn't contribute a lot to the creativity of the kill. You're it right. doesn't. It doesn't make it stack up any better. And now I'm. It makes I them ass- seem incompetent. Actually, it almost takes away from it a little bit. <laughs> Oh, okay. Well, now you're pushing a little far. I what? was just about to agree with you. But they not screwed up. Now. They short-circuited <laughs> yeah. on their entire set. Yeah, but that's awesome. We accidentally right, created a good horror scene. Whoops. Okay. Now, I assume that you didn't like Glenn's death at first, but then came around to liking it. That's how I feel about this death. But is, am I wrong in assuming that you think that? Um, the only reason would have been 
because I was drinking heavily while watching it, and I had become fairly heavily committed to the fact that Glenn was involved. You're like, no, this doesn't commute, compute. Um, well, no, I was kind of hoping that Glenn was, you know, related to Freddy in some way, or that he was somehow connected. He seemed very indifferent, too indifferent to her mission, almost like he was getting in the way, like he was, you know, intentionally, you know, becoming an obstacle to her success. Almost so much so that she was involved, you know? Yes. And, uh, you know, when he got liquefied, it kind of put an end to that. So I became a little bit sad. But that's that's how the cookie crumbles, you know. I imagine I'll that get uh, connected to a character in the second installment and potentially have to deal with their death as well. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm prepared more, though, now, after this. Yeah, I personally I've come around. When I was a kid, this was actually my least favorite of Freddy Krueger's murders cuz I thought it was lazy. Like I liked makeup effects, I liked gore. I liked seeing bone through the skin or you know, teeth from the side of the cheek or you know, I liked that kind of stuff. So when they just pulled him into the bed and dropped the TV onto him in his stupid midriff football jersey shirt and then just spewed a bunch of blood up out of the bed, I was like, "Uh, nah. That was lazy. You guys just poured a bucket of colored water. So I actually found like the the eviscerating scene much more entertaining, or any gore scene for that matter. But I think our our angle with him being pissed off at her really really points to why he was so, you know, unapologetic and you know maybe you know not as flamboyant. Right. Well, like, yeah, like yeah. I'm gonna kill this motherfucker fucking fast. I'm gonna liquefy this son of a bitch because it because he means something to her. Ex- exactly. Yeah, yeah, it's twofold. It's that what you just described him being directly vengeful towards Nancy, and two the trope that I mentioned in our episode zero, where the most nonchalant and cockiest character gets it the worst. Oh, <laughs> oh, I got troped. That's right. He's <sighs> always like, oh, whatever. You guys are being pussies, and then liquefied. Be nice if you could put a, a Price is Right failure sound in there. Do 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 Oh, I got troped. <laughs> oh, better luck next time. <laughs> yeah. And then the fourth death is Marge, Mama Thompson. The mysterious death. The one that we Getting... have now assumed or come to the conclusion is almost like a consumption rather than a a death. Yes, choked, burned, and then absorbed. Ooh. So that might be the most creative death, even though I would not have thought that at first. Yeah, you'd have to maybe go and look at it a little bit more closely, but it maybe does carry the most weight that it is all escalation. Right? It all depends on whether her soul was absorbed or her vessel was just discarded. Volunteering more depth to the movie rubs me a little bit wrong does it it's so fun though i, I don't know. enjoyed I'm, that I'm immensely when you when you got on board i'm waving the 60 percent flag here i can't you know backdoor right, myself guns. into some sort of you know after hours argument about it i don't 
I don't right. need you throwing shit in my face later. I'm trying to be transparent about the fact <laughs> that I'm 60% flag waving and I'm not going to give more depth than than it deserves. I think we all know that my MO is rarely to cause you any sort of concern or embarrassment. The reverse cannot say so. But does that mean that we're giving most creative death to Glenn? Um, I would say without confirmation as to, like from your commentary that you watched, if you didn't get confirmation that that's what's happening, if it's not some sort of like consumption or, you know, the death itself is not serving some sort of different purpose, then I would say that Glenn deserves the award, yeah. Well, Glenn gets it then, because the commentary was not clear. In fact, there seemed like there might have been a little bit of bad blood between Wes Craven and Robert Shea concerning the end of this movie. <laughs> because I was hoping for an explanation, because I don't like the end of this movie. I thought the Freddy Cougar convertible was a little bit cheesy. Does that mean that Nancy's alive and she's sleeping right now and she's dreaming? Does this mean that her mom is still alive? And why did she just get killed a second time through the window at the very end? I don't understand that. So I was hoping for an explanation. That I did not get. What I got was that Wes Craven wanted to have Nancy think that she got away clean, but the next time she falls asleep, Freddy just grabs her and her friends and drives her off to her death. What if that end scene with the mom death isn't like on the bed? What if he's like pushing her into the dream world so he can kill her there? And the end scene is him killing her mom officially. What oh, if, what if the death isn't actually on the bed? Oh, that's so, so that that's like a that's like actually a shot from what's happening in the dream world of Ronnie Blakely. Yeah, maybe she went. Maybe Nancy went back into the dream world to save her mom, and failed to. Oh, or yeah, or you don't even need that part. You only need that to be Marge Thompson's dream as she's being strangled to death and sucked into the bed by Freddy Krueger. Mm. He, he's strangling her, but in her dream, she's being sucked through a window while she's like so living the, the perfect life of being a sober and wishing her kids off. So the end is just her dream where she yeah. dies and her kids drive off in Freddy's car and Nancy's trapped inside of Freddy's world. I agree. Most insightful thing you said all night. Nathan, I think it's time to close this out. Thank you for joining us for A Nightmare on Elm Street, our first venture into the horror franchise podcasting world. You can reach us at 100lunatics.squarespace.com. That's 100 written out in letters. Or on Twitter at 100lunatics. That's 100 as in the number. Or coming soon, check us out on iTunes. Also, you can talk to me at at I hate horror. <laughs> oh yeah, that's right. I forgot. <laughs> if, if you feel like it, I will respond to everything that you say to me. If you want to get in touch with the nightmare to the dream world that is at 100 Lunatics, get into contact with Nathan personally at I hate horror. Thank you and good night. This is the first and the last time that I will ever watch this movie. (laughs) Uh, I highly suggest watching the commentary with this movie.
I found it so charming. I thought Heather Lang Langenkamp was... Mm. Did she give you a boner? I wanted, no, no, not a boner. I wanted to walk up to her locker and close it and then kiss her. Oh, God. <laughs> no, fuck off, man. Is, that's the kind of shit that you would have disdained for if you saw it in a in a TV show or a movie or anything. Like that idea, closing the locker and kissing a girl. That's what I mean. It brings no, up like a no, unnatural, no, no. innocent no. desire. Oh, because she herself is so obviously smart. See, I've found your weakness. I've found your weakness, my friend. This is... See, this is where you hang out. This little place where everything's okay. Where you give permission to all of these cliche nonsense. Ugh. One, two, Eddie's coming for you. Three, four. The difference between growing up in the 80s and 90s and now is you'd masturbate with your eyes closed.